Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast, where we introduce you to a world of small to medium business acquisitions and mergers. We interview business owners, industry leaders, authors, mentors, and other influencers with the sole intent to share with you what it looks like to buy or sell a business. Let's get rolling. Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast. Today I'm with Jonathan Bray Brand, and he's an author, entrepreneur, and expert in the field of advising business owners on the sale of their companies. Jonathan is a managing partner of Transact Capital Partners, and a, which is a boutique M&A advisory firm headquartered in Richmond, Virginia. He has spent over 20 years helping business owners with a wide variety of industries sell their companies to their ideal buyer and achieve the exit outcome they dream of. His book, The $100 Million Exit, Your Roadmap to the Ultimate Payday, analyzes mer- large mergers and acquisitions, success and failures to draw practical, actionable advice that company owners can implement to increase the value of their business and better be pre- prepared for exit. Welcome, Jonathan. Thank you for having uh, let me have you on my show. Yeah, I almost no, made it through there. <laughs> <laughs> so, I always get tongue tied in those, but it's part of the fun. It's like this is a real raw, uncut version of of life, right? We're just going to chat about mergers and acquisitions, so um, it doesn't have to Sounds be polished good. in this space. So, one of the first questions I ask every single time, and, I, and, and uh, is kind of how did you get into this space? What made you want to do mergers and acquisitions? And let's just start there. Let's get to know you know who you are and how you got into this space. Absolutely. Great question. So I started uh, in this industry right out of college. And uh, admittedly, the what drew me to it um, from the beginning was a little bit self-serving. It, it seemed like the opportunities that I was looking at, uh, I, I went to University of Richmond and got a finance degree. Um, and w- the opportunities that I were looking at coming out of college for you know entry-level positions all seemed pretty boring and seemed like they had very little responsibility. And then I stumbled across investment banking analysts. Um, and the more I learned about it and talked to the people like the year ahead of me and two years ahead of me and what they were actually doing, it just fascinated me that people that young would have that much uh, responsibility and exposure to senior people. So I got into it because it seemed exciting and fun. And uh, it has been. But that was you know over 20 years ago. And the reason I've stayed in it is because... I really like working with entrepreneurs and business owners. I love hearing their story. I love, um, you know, getting to know their companies and ultimately helping them with sort of the, the, the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, helping them monetize um, what they have built over, you know, sometimes generations. Um, that's really, really rewarding to me. And I really enjoy that aspect of it. That's awesome. So that's kind of why I've got into the same, same thing I got in this space. Um, I didn't realize how much, I love talking to entrepreneurs until I was participating in a fairly large roll-up project and uh, ended up talking to a couple hundred marketing agencies over a very short period of time, like 180, 200 days. We were really, really active. Uh, 25, 30, you know, one-hour interviews a week, <laughs> right? We were, wow. we were busy. And the thing I found most interesting is the origin story and like, you know, their challenges and what they're trying to accomplish and uh really adhere to that. You said it, you said a couple of key times inside of what you just said of helping the entrepreneurs get where they want to go. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what I, that's what I want to do when I'm on the phone with these guys is I'm not like, Hey, do you want to sell your business? Like how, where do you want to get and how do we get you there? Right. right. 
So, uh, right. and that's important. I mean, uh, a lot of people don't understand the psychological side of this. Uh, we were talking about this on the previous show is a lot of the exits people are doing money is not their highest motivator, right? That's right. Absolutely. And if you're selling, you want to get as much, much as you can. When it draw, when you draw down the line of I can get as much money as possible or, you know, my brand will still exist and my, my employees who worked there for 30 years are still going to have a job. Most of these entrepreneurs are going to lean towards making sure their people are taken care of. And a lot of them are going to be interested in their legacy, their brand. Right. So a hundred percent that you've touched on a couple of key things there. One is we've seen, um, you know, if we run a competitive process, the goal of it is to have multiple options at the end of the day for the entrepreneur or the business owner to choose from. And we often see people go, um, and I think rightly so, with the second or third highest bidder and not just go for um, the top bidder, the most money. Um, and there's lots of reasons for that. That's actually one of the top mistakes that um, that I see people make is overemphasizing price. Um, and not focusing on some of the intangibles that you just mentioned, because there's a lot that goes into making that perfect match, and it's not always the top dollar. Now, it, I will say there's a correlation, though. The, the buyers that find um, the most sort of uh, complementary, you know, not just like economic synergies, but culture synergies and a good fit, they often also seem to value the company the highest, and it sort of works well that the best fits also are towards the top of the range of value, but it's not always the case. Um, and the other point that you mentioned um, that I think is really important is, you know, a lot of times people think the exit is sort of the end of the line. And to some degree, they put it off because they don't want this fun thing to end and they want to, to delay what they think is like the finale. Um, but in reality, the transactions that we work on um, are really all about creating new chapters, really for three different, um, you know, there are three different new chapters that are created. The, the first one is for that business owner, entrepreneur, and their family um, about what's next for them. They, you know, oftentimes will now have, um, a, you know, a monetized and have some wealth that they can uh, do other things with, whether it's um, family goals or, um, you know, philanthropy or travel or start other, you know, businesses in different industries. Um, but it's also a new chapter for the company and where it can go next with, the, with a new partner or part of a new larger organization. And that can bring excitement to the founder to see that their legacy, to your point, is going to get, continue on. And the third is, is a new chapter for the employees and the new opportunities that that new partner or that new strategic buyer bring to them. We, you know, as a quick example, we had a, um, a company I sold a few years ago where there was a key employee that had basically been given as much responsibility as possible and was yearning for more. And there just wasn't any more to give. It was actually a woman to give her in this family run business. Um, and it was worrying the owner because was, she was such a key individual. And through the sale process to a large, much larger family-held business, she now I checked in with her uh, with him a few weeks ago. She's moved up in the parent organization's ranks and has much more responsibility. Is using her talents more fully than she could have in the smaller organization. So it's a great example of a transaction, you know, providing new chapters for the employees as well. It's interesting. I've seen that a lot in the marketing space because there's an inherent problem inside of marketing agencies where. They get to a certain size and they've, they've groomed this talent, trained out talent and the talent's ready for bigger, more creative projects, bigger, like they're ready for like trying to do a project for Coca-Cola or PepsiCo or something big, but the agency's right. still, still too small to land that type of client. So one of yep. the things that the agency owners look for is like 
when we were looking at acquiring them is what were the opportunities for their employees to take on those bigger projects so they didn't lose them, right? They usually yep. would uh, train, you know, one of the problems inside of that industry is you train, you end up training your employees right out of a job, right? You train right. them so they're so good, they go somewhere else that, you know, can get those contracts and it makes, yep. your, uh, you know, it makes a problem there. So interesting. Um, right now, there's this, just, the market is just really, I, I'm personally, I think it's just really good. There's a lot of people, the baby boomers and, and stuff that are uh, coming out of COVID, they've, they've had it, right? Um, right. And they're looking, you know, they're looking at what their next chapter is and stuff. I don't know that there's been a better time. Um, you know, one of the reasons I'm in this space is I don't know there's been a better time in uh, recent history to take a look at, you know, buying businesses and instead of, you know, starting from scratch. Are you seeing that mm -hmm. too? Are you seeing this, you know, um, like a good steady flow of just available opportunities around? Absolutely. And that, that trend, uh, the M&A market has been strong and continues to be strong. I think it's building momentum, partly because of just generational uh, transfers that are needed. Um, second and third, fourth generations aren't staying in many businesses. And so that leaves uh, those owners without a succession plan that maybe they thought was going to be there and therefore they're looking to sell. Um, and the challenges of coming out of this, you know, the last several years that has kind of maybe put some business owners to the point where they, they just want it to exit. Um, but, you know, one of the, there's, there's kind of three markers that we um, counsel our clients to think about when trying to, to decide when the right time is to sell. Um, and the high, the, the activity within M&A market is, is the number one, uh, is, is the first one to look at. So you've touched on an important one there. The good news is, except for some, you know, particular little stretches across time, um, the M&A market is pretty robust. And there's some real reasons for that. We just talked about some of the supply in terms of businesses that are coming to market and will continue to come to market. There's also demand for those businesses, drivers there as well. Capital has been raised in private equity funds, um, in historically low interest rates, even if they jump up some here in the next year or two, still historically low. Lots of cash on strategic buyers, balance sheets where they need to show more growth to their um, stockholders than they can organically. And so making acquisitions is a, a stated part of their growth trajectory. So you have all these uh, factors that are um, driving demand for deals, and then you've got um, the supply of deals growing, and it's uh, it's a convergence of, of factors that leads to a, a you know, seller's market. Awesome. So you have a book out called The $100 Million Exit. So tell us a little bit about, like, you know, what's inside of that and, like, how you went about, like I said, you analyzed uh, large mergers and acquisitions. So yep. what were some of the key lessons that you learned by analyzing the bigger deals? Yeah, so I looked. the The premise of the book is to, um, you know, it's, I think it's a pretty well known fact that large transactions, and we picked a hundred million dollars um, as sort of a, a, a template for what a large transaction might be uh, in the eyes of, of many um, business owners. Large transactions, by their nature, get um, higher multiples. Um, they sell for not just higher dollar prices, but a higher multiple of earnings. And some of that is based on pure size. But there's also aspects that, that um, I wanted to investigate to see if there's some things that, that could translate to business owners of any size. And that was sort of the premise of the book. And so I interviewed and drew from deal experiences that I've personally had to look at large transactions and what are some of the takeaways that drew, uh, that, that led to those um, higher value exits and what could, what could a, a, 
regular ordinary business owner take from them. So, um, you know, the first two or three chapters are all about preparing um, and the idea of being in a sale ready posture, which I think is really important and, and is uh, um, is overlooked. And so that's the idea that you, you as a business owner, you should be ready to react to things um, from a sale perspective um, even though a sale may not be in the cards uh, at that moment, it may not be something you're actively pursuing. And so um, that involves things like building relationships with um, future uh, buyers, even before you need, particularly before you actually are asking them for any um, response or to look at any information. Um, getting in the habit of doing annual um, strategic planning and holding yourself accountable to reporting out the results of those plans and starting to think about um, successor. And not just successor for the owner of ownership of the business, but for your role in the business. Because ultimately, if you can't step back from the business, you have a, a job, you don't have a, a saleable business. So some of it is to get um, these ideas out into the hands of business owners who aren't ready to sell and wouldn't have come found wouldn't have come to find me um, in that mode of I'm, I'm now ready to engage your service to sell. The book was designed to get to them ahead of time and help make their business more valuable. So on that topic, you know, as you're going through your building a business and stuff, when's the right time to start identifying, you know, if you, if you know you're going to build it to sell it or you're going to exit at some point, when is the right time to start identifying that in buyer and uh, like, uh, how do you how do you identify them? Like, yeah. So um, two things there. The first one is um, it's going to sort of I think under, undermine the second part a little bit, but um, it's really hard to to predict the ultimate single buyer. Now we can certainly um, I'm going to talk about ways to identify likely buyers, but um, in all the deals that I've worked on, it's rare that you could pinpoint with ac absolute certainty. This is the group that will buy my company and then you know, run a, a, a large process and that one group ends up at the end of the day. There's so many variables that can go into it. That being said, um, I think it's never too early to start that process to answer your question. And so one of the ideas that we talk about in the book is um, identifying a handful of likely buyers. And that can come from you know, in the industry, you know, larger competitors, um, people in ancillary industries that you think, man, if I were partnered with them, we could do great things together. Um, and so it's a little bit of a dream, a wish list of like, who is like the, the, the best companies in my sector or in a related sector where I can see a lot of great fit. And if, I, if, if they had what I have and I had what they had, we could do great things together. Um, and then just reaching out to them, um, again, without asking them anything um, and saying, I'd like to introduce myself, to get to know you a little bit, tell you what kind of company I'm building. Um, hear what types of things you're looking at in terms of acquisitions, particularly as a public company, you can do research on, you know, what their stated acquisition criteria is or what some uh, past acquisitions have been, getting them talking about what they liked about the last deal that they did and what they're looking for next. All that, it does two things. One, it influences uh, your strategy, to your point. If we know that many of the buyers in our, my industry are looking for the same characteristics that maybe I should make sure that I'm creating those characteristics in my business. Um, and, you know, other, um, other input that you can glean can help decide, you know, how you set up your operations, how you expand. There's lots of things you can get from it. The benefit externally though, is that you start a file essentially in their, um, on their side of, man, I just talked to this really cool company. They're, you know, not ready to sell yet, but I like 
what I heard. I like what they're doing. They're doing cool things. And um, you check in with them, you know, every year or two. Again, I'm not asking you to buy my business. I'm not asking you to value my business. I'm just letting you know what I'm doing. And the discussion is not anything, um, you know, confidential. It's, it's really nothing more than they could find on their website. You're more putting um, a face to and a story behind what you're building so that when the time does come and they hire someone like me and I make a call and say, hey, I'm calling about a company. I think you may you know, have heard of them, X, Y, and Z. Instead of saying, oh, that sounds interesting. I've never heard of them. Send me the information and I'll see. It's like, oh, I can't. I'm so glad that you finally called. I've been talking to that, you know, on and off with that person for years. I'm excited now that there's an opportunity to actually do something with them. You've basically laid the groundwork for yourself to make uh, that conversation, uh, you know, quick and painless. So you mentioned the different criteria. Do you see that, you know, the different buckets of buyers, for instance, uh, private equity, family offices, strategic mm-hmm. a- acquisitions, competitors, and and uh, strategic partners, and that type of stuff, type, those type of acquisitions? Do each of those buckets kind of fall within the same rules, or are they kind of all wild, wild west and want different things when they do the acquisitions? Or I mean, if I'm gonna, if I look at it, if I, here's what I'm getting at: if I look at a business and go, you know what? If I did X, Y, and Z, I'd be really attractive for private equity companies, and they pay a decent premium for a company of this size. Is mm-hmm. is that doable? It is. Um, so, in many ways, they are both of those types of buyers are looking for the same types of things. Um, so, there's it's a Venn diagram. There's a lot of overlap um, in terms of high quality characteristics um, that both of those types of buyers are looking for. And keep in mind, private equity are looking to buy businesses that they may ultimately want to sell to a strategic buyer, but they want to do, they want to help get it bigger in the meantime. So um, to some degree, strategic buyers are often sort of the, the end of the line, um, whether you go straight there or whether you go through one or multiple rounds of private equity before you get your business gets to that point. Um, that's oftentimes sort of the way um, a business through acquisitions will evolve. But a key difference to think about as you're evaluating, as, as, a, as a business owner is evaluating those two different categories. So I'll put strategic buyers in one bucket and all types of financial buyers, family office, private equity, um, you know, fundless sponsors. All There's a bunch of different kinds of financial buyers, um, search funds, but in, two, in the same bucket. And the key care thing, and, and I would also say that we often counsel our clients to, to look at both. It's not like you're picking one or the other. It's to actually contact samples or, or a broad swath of both sides so that you can evaluate, maybe meet with groups from both sides to determine which path makes sense for your company at that, stand, at that stage. But the main difference that we see is strategic buyers have a, a plan, a strategic plan that they're executing. They're heading in a certain direction. And what they want to know is, does your business help their, them further their strategic plan? Are you a puzzle piece that's missing from the puzzle they're trying to build? And frankly, if you're one of the last puzzle pieces of a puzzle they're trying to build, it's going to be, they're going to be willing to pay a premium to get, uh, to fill in some capability gap or talent gap or ge- geographic gap. Um, but they're on a path that they're looking to see whether you fit to help them in that regard. A financial buyer is different. They're actually, they have no preconceived notion of, of a plan they want to hear what your plan is and whether the capital and expertise and connections that they bring to the table can help accelerate the path that you're on. So um, there, the focus is much more on what is your business independently? Where is it headed today? What could it do with more capital? With uh, What could you do if you were able to make acquisitions of your own um, 
bring in other uh, senior level resources that maybe are outside of your budget today, but you would feel more comfortable doing it if you had a, a financial partner. Um, and so there's a there's a difference there around: Are you joining someone? You're jumping on someone else's train, or are you getting an accelerant for the train that you're on? So. I have a lot of listeners that are actually in this space of buying companies, growing them, and then turn around and, and selling them. In that respect, are there industries that you see like you just you would avoid, right? They're just notoriously hard to get deals done inside of. So um, some it, it goes a little bit back to the um, what makes businesses valuable, and and to some degree, valuation is is just tied to perceived risk. So the perceived risk in a business, the higher it is, the lower the the price, the multiple that that a buyer is willing to pay. You know, there are transactions that um, you know probably can get done in in any industry for the right price. Um, the challenge is trying to make sure you don't get stuck into an, an industry where the multiples are low because the perceived risk is so high. And so, in, investors, buyers of of both strategic or financial nature. You know, are are looking to to minimize risk that is outside of um, you know essentially their control, and so where I'm headed with that is you know highly cyclical industries, industries that um, have a lot of regulatory exposure, where you know one a change in a law could annihilate you know the profitability of a sector or the legality of a sector, um, you know. Um, cannabis in the U.S. is an example where, you know, there's not a lot of, of investment because it's still federally, um, you know, not legal. But Canada it, it is a different situation. Um, you know, cryptocurrency is uh, another example that is seen as a little bit of uh, too risky for most, uh, not for investors of the, of the capital, but for businesses based on, um, on crypto. But even some old, you know, economy ones, you know, a lot of construction trades where um, it's highly, highly project oriented and you don't have a lot of backlog. Um, maybe it's tied to, um, you know, the government funding, a, a highway transportation bill, um, you know, is an example of, you know, that's kind of boom or bust. You get a you get a gas tax hike and, and those businesses are flush with cash and then that uh, wears out and construction companies get really tight. Um, for work, and then it kind of goes again. So, businesses that are highly cyclical, oil and gas is another example. Those can be challenging, um, and often buyers will look at a multi-year average, um, but they don't want to buy off a peak um, and, and get caught. So, for instance, uh, I had I actually had a group of investors come to me and said, "Hey, if you'll do a roll-up and go out and acquire a bunch of veterinarian clinics, we'd like to be the buyer of them at the mm -hmm. other end." And then I did the yep. research on it. In most states, you know, an individual cannot, oh, I think something like 40 something of the states, an individual cannot buy a veterinary clinic. What you have to do is set up a, med uh, a medical service organization, right? In yep. that state, you own the MSO. The MSO can own the building, own the equipment, um, hire the doctor, but can't tell the doctor, the veterinarian, anything. They can't tell you, you can't tell them what prescriptions they can make or can't make, what, you know, procedures they can or cannot do. But you're yep. pretty much uh, their their office manager and their marketing uh, tool. And it's the same way with dentist offices and some other stuff. You can do a DSO in most states. But uh, yep. what that introduced was like about $25,000 to $30,000 worth of legal fees and setup fees in every single state you wanted to do it in. So we haven't right. pulled the trigger on that one yet. Um, but, the, you know, that just be aware there are some things out there that, you know, an individual just can't run out and buy without, you know, some extra, you know, legwork and some extra legal you know, paperwork. So, 
Yeah, I mean, a great example of those to add on to that are uh, many professional services firms, um, you know, like an architectural firm typically has to be owned by an architect. Um, many accounting firms have to be owned by a, a licensed CPA. Um, class A contractors have to be owned by a class A contractor license uh, holder. You know, so there are definitely some um, of the more technical trades where that licensing becomes a, a key a key element of it. And maybe you could even buy the business, but you're dependent on if you don't have the license of the license of some person that if they left, you would be out of business. Yeah, I bought a pest, a very small pest control company before I even took the courses on how to do this uh, to employ some relatives of mine that I really like. And uh, funny thing is I ended up having to rebrand it and go out and get all the licenses myself because like you have to have the license in order. Like one of the, one of the owners has to, have to be all fully licensed. So I, Really exactly. good at taking tests. I went out and took all the tests. I never intend on touching a chemical. And then <laughs> we realized that the previous guy that we got the equipment from and were in the middle of you know buying his uh, customer list and everything um, didn't do his paperwork right and didn't hold up to the standards. So we just pretty much did a startup. <laughs> like right. we already had all the license. We already had everything. We even let my uh, my little daughter name it. It's uh, if you can see that it's Lullaby Pest Control. We. Uh, Oh, nice. We were we were brainstorming on what to call it. So uh, my daughter at the time was four or five, and she's like, "You can you can call it lullaby," but because uh, uh, you guys don't kill bugs, you just put them to sleep. Like, yeah, sleep, <laughs> yeah, they're gonna sleep for a very long time. Um, exactly. But that yeah, I got that. Like you know, I got that that lesson the hard way, and then I you know I just determined I I like buying them as opposed to building them. I built quite a few in my uh, my past, but. Uh, I went out and got trained and, and um, you know, studied some different things to, to not do, not buy myself another job, right? Right. Let's go right. back to the, uh, like, you know, exiting right. Um, we had some discussion before this uh, that we wanted to, like, kind of cover what are the biggest mistakes people make when they're preparing for exit. So uh, I'd love to get your, your insight on that. Yeah, so one of them is waiting too long to sell. Um, so if you think about the baseball analogy, you know, you want to sell like in the seventh inning, you know, you, you want to have some nice trajectory behind you, but you also want to have some, um, some pretty good, um, uh, opportunities ahead of you. Uh, the, the mistake, uh, business owners often make, and it ties back to that delaying what they feel like is some type of finale is they just wait too long and they're in the, you know, extra innings. And, and the issue with that is, um, you know, business, their business may plateau um, or even start to decline a little bit. And business uh, buyers are buying the future. They're not buying the past. So the fact that you had your best year two years ago is good for you, but not good for the, the, the your next partner. And so they're really focused on what's the business going to do next year, the year after that, and into the future, um, either independently or, or in conjunction with what they bring to the table. And so... Um, uh, waiting too long, you know, is is an issue. Um, they certainly are going to look at the historical financials, so I don't mean to disregard that. But they do that to, to one understand where the business has come from, and to two validate their beliefs about where the business is heading in the future. But again, what happened um, under your watch is for your benefit, not for theirs. So I'd say waiting for too waiting too long to sell is a big one. Um, Prejudging buyers is another one. So when the time comes to uh, to engage a firm and to run a process, you know um, there is always times throughout the process that you can um, kind of kick a buyer out if for some reason you learn something that um, you know is disconcerting to you or you realize that, that they really aren't um, the right buyer for you. Um, but 
so there's no commitment when you begin a process if you're going to contact a buyer that you you know have to consider them all the way through to the end. The mistake though is starting too narrow, and and it may ties back to a belief that you know I know that these this buyer or this buyer is going to be the right one. We don't need to contact any others. And the challenge with that is you don't know what's going on in those buyers' boardrooms right now. And and maybe they were a great buyer last year, but things have changed and they are putting out buyers internally and they're not looking at acquisitions right now. Or they just made another one and that window's closed for six months until they can integrate that business. Um, or they are interested in your company, but they're going to pay you half of what you know what the business is actually worth. And because you've never had any real discussions, the fit sounds great, but when it comes to valuing the business, you're on you know, two separate planets. And so um, Allowing a broader universe of buyers to start, I think, is the right is the right move. Understanding that you may be surprised positively um, with with uh, buyers that um, you didn't expect would be aggressive. That again, not knowing what's happening on their side of the table, they maybe have been looking for a business just like yours and just were more quiet about it. And you didn't realize it. Um, and again, as you um, sort through the feedback, and it's definitely a two way mark uh, two way interview process. It's a little bit like a speed dating. You're getting to know them. They're getting to know you through this process, and we help facilitate that. If you learn something that is not going to fit, um, you can just say, this, I don't think this one's going to work. And, and by having more options out there um, and not putting all your eggs in one basket, you have that flexibility. To If you've met with five or six, seven groups, and one of them kind of rubs you the wrong way, that's no problem. You've still got plenty others. Whereas if you start too narrow, um, it kind of pigeonholes you a little bit. It's interesting. You were saying that you know the buyers buy in on the future. I would say... As a buyer, I think I would say we buy on the past. We 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 buy on the future, but we pay on the past, right? right. So you look at the EBITDA. It's a multiple of EBITDA what you've done over the last three years average, and most yeah. of us are given some leeway if COVID hits you. We look a little bit past the three years and kind of give you some benefit of the doubt inside of those numbers, just because it needs to be adjusted, right? And then, but if you don't have a future, if you can't show us like the trajectory of where you're going. It's not a fool's errand, but it's a bad idea to just assume that you could do better than somebody that's running it for 30 years, right? right. So if, if an owner comes to me and says, you know, I'm at my wits end, I don't know how to take this to the next level, unless it's in my lane, like I've done it a bunch of times, if it's in right. real estate or marketing or maybe computer security, I've been out of that for 15 years, I might take a deeper look because I might be able to figure out where we could take them that they didn't think of on their own. Right. The other 90 million industries... <laughs> They're out of my lane. And unless you can show me, like, I've got a team here. We have a path and we have a plan. I need to exit. And I, these guys can continue this plan without me. You know, you lose me. You lose a lot of investors right. that way. Right. A hundred percent. So, so uh, I, I totally align with that. I say we, we buy on the future and we pay on the past from the buyer's perspective. Right. Absolutely. There might be some, when you, what's the word I'm looking for? Not brand equity. There's a name for like the performer, the looking for the, the future. There's some, number or something given that you might get a slightly if you can paint a very beautiful picture you'll get a, high, a little bit higher of a multiple because yep. if we buy into it and we think your team can execute on it they have a history of setting goals and achieving them you know yep. then you know that that opens up an opportunity for us too so yeah so a quick note on valuation i agree with everything you just said you know if we uh there is an art and a science to valuing private companies, right? So public companies, you can just see what their market cap is. You can add debt if you want to get to enterprise value, but um, it's it, they, they're priced every day, every minute. 
private companies is not the case whatsoever, and it's very much the values in the in the eye of the beholder. Um, there is a science element to it, um, and it, you know there are valuation models, and you can you can hire people to do business valuations for one purpose or another, um, and that that's a good starting point, and and a lot of buyers will use those as a foundation, but there is an art to it as well that is driven by competition, the need to, to uh, you know to fill a puzzle piece. Um, you know, from a financial buyer, that was more of a strategic buyer. From a financial buyer perspective, you know, pressures that you may not even think about. Like, um, you know, we raised a fund and we've gone nine months and we haven't put any capital to work. And this business was right in our wheelhouse. And I know the models say we ought to pay $50 million for it, but I'd pay 55 just to get my, you know, investors off my back that we got one done. Ooh. And, um, so if I were to, if we were running a process and we got back, after sending out, you know, creek for qualifying people, they sign an NDA, they review the materials that we've prepared, and we get a first round bid of just based on the book, haven't talked to anybody, we think the valuation range for this company is X to Y. And we laid them out just, you know, numerically. You'd see this kind of bell curve, and you'd have some tire kickers, value buyers, they're hoping to get a good deal, um, but they're kind of underpricing it. You'd see uh, at the peak of it, sort of where everybody is running those same models and they're coming out with basically the same kind of market value. And if we were going to tell you before running the process what your company's worth, we'd, we'd probably be in that same range. We want to give you a range that, you know, we have a high degree of, of, of confidence in, in a delivering. But there'd be that other tale, that spike bidders, where they ran those same models, but there's something else about uh, the future of the business, about something that they liked, about the team, about how it fits, that they're willing to go beyond that. And ultimately, it's not like a democracy. You're not trying to figure out what every, a consensus of what everybody thinks the company's worth. You're trying to find that most aggressive spike bidder who maybe usually looks at three years of financials and averages them. But for this business, they're willing to just look at the last year and give you a multiple of that and not have the average play in. And so the purpose of running a process to some degree is to make sure that you're letting the market speak and you find the, the most aggressive buyer, not just the one that's in the, you know, in the, in the, in the highest uh, probability range. Right. I noticed that you call your firm an advisory firm and um, there's people out there that are investment bankers. And then there's a group of, you know, that are just brokers. What do yep. you see? There's a big difference between like somebody reaching out and just going to a brokerage you know, a Murphy's mm -hmm. brokerage or something like that, and actually yep. working with what you would do as M&A advisory. Is there, yep. is there a clear difference between what those would be? I think there is. Um, and I think I have a lot of respect for business brokers, and I think they play a valuable role in the overall ecosystem. Um, but the way that they, um, they bring, they work with clients and bring business, and, and ultimately we, we all sell businesses, but the way that they do it is different. And so um, a business broker is typically working with smaller businesses that um, uh, uh, are more oftentimes looking for individual buyers. Um, and so the approach that they take is typically uh, similar to a real estate um, agent where they will list the business without its name, but they will list it um, with an asking price and a little bit of information about it. And it's a little bit of the first come, first serve. The first buyer that um, has an interest that um, is, can be at or, or you know, near that listing price will engage with them. And um, you know, we've got lots of businesses listed and tell me what you're looking for. Um, and we try to get those done. And those, that process works really well for individual buyers who are looking to, to buy a business they're going to get involved with. Typically, in the, 
you know, under $2 million range, if I had to put a number on it. Businesses that are, you know, $5 million and above, and there's a gap, sort of an overlap in between, uh, in, a, in an M&A advisory firm or an investment bank, I'd use those synonymously, um, like what we do, is we don't list businesses and we don't give us a, a price, a listing price. We do uh, probably more work up front to create um, a, a more robust set of offering materials about the business. And it's kind of um, split between historical facts and projections and opportunity and forward-looking information. Um, we do research on um, likely buyers and um, identified likely buyers, work with our client to get those approved from them. And then we just reach out on an individual basis to those buyers. There's never anything listed. There's never anything um, publicly available. If you're not on the list, you would have never known that business got, uh, was uh, being sold. Um, and frankly, if, you don't, if, if, you're, if we reach out to you and you aren't interested in any acquisitions or you're, um, you know, you're not focused on, on acquisitions of that type, We'll end the conversation and you didn't know why I was calling to begin with. It's a very confidential process. The reason that this works well for larger businesses, it takes more time, it takes more involvement on the advisor's um, end, is that we run a, an auction process where unlike that kind of first come, first serve, we have all those buyers on the same timeline looking at the same information so that on, on a date certain, they all give us feedback and it's like having a, you know, a multiple bidder situation for a house. We can line them all up, excuse some, move forward with the others. There's gates later in the process where we have them rebid. And so you're kind of doing it once and doing it thoroughly and having them all compete versus taking one at a time serially. So you've been doing this for 20 years. Is there anything you know now that you wish you'd have known on day one of starting this whole process? Um. You know, I've seen a wide variety of businesses um, in all types of industries. Um, I think the the thing that gets overlooked the most often is the quality of the management team makes a big, big difference. And it's not just the owner, but it's that second tier senior management leadership um, that can make a real difference in the multiple and on the depth of buyers that, that are interested in your company. Um, and I, I recognize it's hard as a small business owner to hire you know, they're typically the, the most well-compensated folks in the organization. It's hard to make those hires. Um, sometimes they don't work out. But really focusing on your direct reports and, and finding the best individuals that you can for those roles will pay dividends when it comes time to exit. Um, and being able to show uh, a team that's capable and, and exceptional and has a plan, as you were uh, talking about earlier in your example, whether it's a financial buyer or a strategic buyer, they're going to look to the quality of the team. And if you're wanting to step back, who's going to fill your role? Who's going to take the, the mantle forward? Um, I think sometimes uh, business owners think strategic buyers don't care about that. They've, they've got management teams in place and they just need, you know, your customer list or, um, you know, your product line or whatever. Um, but, you know, they, they're thin too. They're looking for talent and they, they may um, you know, be able to do some of the overseeing of your business if it becomes a division of, of their uh, organization, but they still need people on the ground in your facility running it, and uh, they can help with some back office stuff, but they need the, the key people to keep moving your business forward. So they're looking at the, at the quality of the management team uh, maybe just as much as the financial buyers are. So really investing in the senior management team, I think, is something that I've seen make a big, big difference over time that's often overlooked. So in the deals, uh, I mean, in in the in the space in those you're looking at, and the deals you got coming across, are there there's some 
what I'm what I'm seeing in the market is there's some real like hot spots, and from a buyer's perspective, I'm kind of trying to avoid them. So, for instance, SaaS, right, software as a service, the multiples yep. on SaaS companies, good, well-ran ones, are absolutely insane right now, in my view. That's right. Actually, even even the smaller ones, right? Even the smaller yep. ones. The other one are the uh, the Amazon stores. Uh, what do they call them? FBA or whatever the uh, uh, the Amazon stores. Uh, right. The multiple. I've I've got you know. Uh, a few friends that have some, and they were offered 15, 20, some even as high as 30 times their, their EBITDA multiples. I don't like wow. sell it now before that, you know, before it cools off, you can <laughs> build anything right. else you want. Just sell that thing right now. while Everybody's <laughs> crazy spent overspending for it. So, yep. and for those of you that don't understand what that is, is that multiple three X or 30 X. Uh, and from a buyer's perspective, that's how many years it's going to take to return that money. If you, if you stay on the path they're on, you're paying mm-hmm. three times profit or five times profit and then and that or whatever the number is. In the case we were just talking software as a service and those uh, Amazon stores, you know, selling products on Amazon, you're talking about a 20 or 30 multiple. You're not making all the money back for 20 to 30 years unless you drastically increase revenue. Right. So it's right. a very long play. So um, are there any other industries like that that are just kind of crazy hot right now that you know of? So um, they come and go. And um, you mentioned uh, veterinary clinics and dentist practices. Um, that might be on the tail end, but that was definitely really, really hot. And, I, and, and there's probably some sectors that that continues to be um, uh, a really uh, good good place to have a business to, to sell. We've sold a number of businesses in those sectors and they've done really, really well. Those are businesses that are seen as I mean, fragmented and they can be rolled up where economies of scale can be played and there could be a lot of savings if you have um, a, a core support network that can you know, uh, provide services to a, a broad geographic um, set of, of deliverable you know, businesses that do the, the actual delivery of the services. Um, home-related services, once you mentioned pest control, um, that's that and um, you know, in, things in and around the home, plumbing, HVAC, electrical, um, less construction oriented, more service oriented businesses, um, even some, um, you know, chemical treatment for lawns and, and things like that. even lawn care businesses, believe it or not, um, things with high degrees of recurring revenue where you get on a, you know, a plan and that person just comes and provides that service and it's sort of on auto pay. Um, those businesses are hot right now. Things that, that weathered the recession well, um, you know, uh, to be leery are things that spiked because of um, of COVID um, and maybe start to be cooling off. And so, you know, we see businesses that, you know, doubled and tripled their revenue in 2020 and 2021 and want to get a full multiple off that when everybody knows it's coming back to reality and, and buyers know that too. And so it's like uh, the liquor business. Reality. Yeah, the liquor yeah. business. I was looking at a few, uh, I guess, about a month or two now. And, uh, He's like, why are your numbers so crazy and high for the last two years? And turn around and they started making hand sanitizer during that time under another right. brand. And this same stuff, it's distilled alcohol or whatever. I mean, they, they use the same equipment, I guess. So it was yeah. pretty easy for them to switch the line and uh, and make their own line of hand sanitizers. Yeah, they're not going to stay up there with those big brands once the shelves are not cleared of them. So Exactly. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But no, I think there's, there's always... Um, you know, the markets that are sectors that are in favor. And those are some of the ones right now. You know, the the trick with those Amazon stores that you mentioned, and, and um, we've seen that same activity is, man, I'm just leery of um, when you've got so much of your business that's going through, you know, essentially one channel, 
you know, a change in their law, in their algorithm, or they decide to look at your bestsellers and, and knock them off, that there's a, there's risk there. So I agree with your advice to your friends of I'd get out while the getting's good. It is interesting as I, I, they asked me, Hey, you're buying business. You want to buy my Amazon store? I was like, I don't, and I just have to tell them, I don't touch anything where a single party can ruin my day. Right. That's right. And, uh, and I, I'm, I'm in Oklahoma. I'm surrounded by cannabis businesses, but it's not federally legal. So for two reasons, right. again, a single party can end my day. Right. And yep. the second reason is, is I like to play in these uh, larger team mergers and acquisitions projects, roll ups and stuff like that. Some of those are international and I can't put that team at risk because I'm involved with something that's OK locally that the federal government right. can smack us, you know, on the hand anytime right. they wanted to. So I, I stay away from it, even though like. There are more like cannabis, uh, you want to call it, uh, dispensaries between here and my house, and there are gas or gas stations and grocery stores. <laughs> it's insane. Right. I live way out in the boondocks, and from the last point where like I can get groceries, I pass three dispensaries before I can get home. Right, <laughs> you know, out in the yeah. out in the boondocks. I'm talking like, you know, when it snows, I can't get out of my driveway, kind of place. I own a little private valley, but uh, so I I get the hot markets and. and are there, what's this, like, are there markets out there that are just steady? They Year in and year out, there's always a decent market for them. I'm thinking home service is probably in that space, right? There's always going to yep. be somebody out there that wants to grow their business. I know I do. I'd like to turn yep. a lullaby pest control into, like I was telling you about, into lullaby home services. Mainly because if I have a cleaning service, what do the cleaning ladies find when they go clean behind stuff, right? They find bugs yep. or they call the, you know, so it's an upsell, cross-sell environment, yep. you know, a handyman. One of the biggest things mm -hmm. I have to do for that for that company is we have to call handymen out to do certain chores, like replace door thresholds and stuff like that, because ex exclusion, keeping things from being able to crawl in, is a very right. valid part of the process. So, yep. uh, you know, strategic acquisitions around that realm is somewhere I'm definitely doing that. But are there other industries that are just steady? You know, I'm thinking probably marketing firms will never like just taper off because they're people are always going to want to better market their product or grow their own marketing agency by acquiring somebody that's developed a talent or skill that they don't necessarily, you know, have yet. Right. Yeah. Where that expertise, um, and particularly that's an exa example where that, that world is ever changing and, and, you know, it's worth paying people the expertise to have the expertise to be able to, um, maximize in that environment for their clients rather than trying to figure it out on your own. So, yeah, I mean, I think that there's, um, to some degree, there is a, a case to be made across a wide variety of industries for all. It's it's finding the businesses that, you know, have um, a defensible, um, you know, competitive advantage, uh, which can be in a, in a lot of different ways, but uh, can be achieved in a lot of different ways. You know, recurring revenue, you know, having some um, competitive moat around it where it's difficult to be outsourced, um, you know, or, or sent to overseas, um, strong relationships, lack of customer concentration, um, as you mentioned, not having one group um, ruin your day. Um, but a topic that you, you touched on that I think is really important, I want to just hit on for a second, is, is uh, another mistake I see business owners make is poor positioning when they go to sell their business. And um, what I mean by that is defining the landscape in which your business operates more broadly than you might think is really valuable. And so, um, you know, your pest control business could be a pest control business, but it also could be um, the first leg of a multi-leg home um, services business where there are all these other tie-ins. And whether you've done any of the other ones or not, defining what your business is more broadly than what it actually does today 
helps to plant that seed in the buyer's mind that this is something bigger than just a local pest control company. Um, it attracts more buyers that maybe um, weren't looking for that, but are looking for a multi-service um, you know, home services business, and this could be one element of it. Um, and it helps show them that you've got um, bigger growth opportunities ahead of you than just simply adding on more of the same. Um, and so it points to that you know, the opportunities um, example. And so giving you know, that, uh, that example can be applied to businesses across the board and being a little bit more creative. You still have to be intellectually honest um, with how you describe your business, but being more um, broad, open-minded and broad in describing and how you position your business, you get to decide how you, de- you know, when the time comes to exit, how you want to describe it and the broader, the better. Cool. So I've asked you a bunch of questions. We've talked about random topics. One of the favorite things I like to do is say, what should I have asked? What, what did it, what, you know, is there anything that's come up in this conversation that you're like, Hey, we probably should talk about that. The world needs to know it. Or, uh, I mean, is there a question that we're, we're skipping over here that I, I failed to ask you? The one thing that, um, that maybe would be good to end on is, you know, part of the reason I wrote the book, part of the reason that people like me still have um, a, a job is that I think business owners um, have a lot of misconceptions about exiting their business and they fall into two polar opposite camps. And I, I just want to really quickly demystify or debunk both of them. One end of the spectrum says, uh, man, selling my business will be very easy. I don't have to worry about it. Uh, when the time comes, the right buyer will fall in my lap. I don't have to do any preparation for it. I'm not going to think about it until the day I want to retire and I'll just sell it like a house. Maybe it takes 60 days. Um, the answer is it takes six to nine months. Um, but because of that misconception, they do none of the things that we recommend people do to prepare. The other one end of the spectrum is, man, it's so hard it's going to be super expensive. I don't know uh, what investment bankers do. It kind of feels like they get paid a lot of money. I'm not sure why. Um, and there's this angst and they, and they want to avoid it. It feels like a big dark cloud. And they similarly do none of the preparation work and they feel like it's overwhelming. And the answer is it's neither overwhelming nor super easy. And if you find the right advisor to help you through the process, even well before you need you want to exit, um, uh, you will be in much better shape. So just having the, an egg, you know, all business owners will exit their business at some point for sure. And they may do it on their deathbed. Um, they may do it um, when the business goes out of business or they may do it at the peak when all the stars align, but they're going to exit their business at some point rather than avoiding the conversation, understand it, work with an advisor before you need one so that it's an active part of your strategy. Maybe you don't think about it every day, but every year you might reconsider where am I, where, what, um, how's the business, um, you know, growing and how uh, are, are my exit plans uh, evolving? So that's something you're actively thinking about, just like you would other types of um, areas of your business and not something that you've stuck away in a corner and trying to pretend like it doesn't exist. Awesome. So one of the things I, I want to make sure we get out there is your contact information and stuff, but also if... If, if you've got, if people hear this on podcast and they're, and they're, or they're listening to watching it on YouTube and stuff, and they have like a business that's ABC and they want to do XYZ, what is your target market? Is there, I mean, is there something like if you've got X, Y, and Z and you're wanting to do this, then you should probably give me a call or is there a pretty broad spectrum of what you're looking for? Or is there something that you could just tell uh, the audience that, Hey, if you got this, I'd really like to talk to you. Absolutely. So we um, specialize in working, thank you for asking, with business owners, 
um, privately held businesses really anywhere in the U.S. Um, that um, you know want to think about um, either they're ready to exit or they want to talk about a plan to exit at some point in the future. Um, we're in that investment banking range, so typically, you know, five million of revenue or more. Um, that's not a hard and fast line, um, and we know a bunch of great business brokers. That um, if you want to reach out and, and you feel like that's the, the better option to go, you've got a smaller business. I'm happy to help send you in that direction as well. Um, but really, people who want to make you know to get comfortable with this side of their business, the side being planning for an exit. Or actually, you know, we, we think the time has come to exit. Um, that would be the way to, to reach out to us. And, you know, if you think about a timeline, a business owner will typically, a, a new buyer will want some type of transition after closing. A process can take, you know, six to nine, maybe 12 months. You got to be, you know, and there's a little bit of preparation before that. You got to be a, a couple years ahead of when you actually want to walk away. Um, um, and when you start to add up those timelines. So it's really never too early to, to start to reach out. So for your contact information, I have your LinkedIn. I'm going to put that up real quick. Verify that for me. So if you're watching this, you can see his LinkedIn uh, URL. I think so. That's right. Awesome. <laughs> if you're listening, it'll be in the show notes. So go to our, whatever app you're, you're using, Apple or, or Spotify or Amazon. On, we're on, on all, all of them. But uh, if you look at the show notes, the links to contact Jonathan will be in the show notes. And the reach, uh, if you want to reach out to me, they'll be there and there also. And then... Uh, he gave me your email address inside of the inside of the uh, uh, the intake form. Do you want that displayed mm -hmm. on here? Sure, that'd be fine. Okay. So this is the email address. It is Jonathan at transactcapital.com. And I it. don't put those in the show notes, so you gotta write that down. His name is spelled Jonathan J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N at transactcapital.com. And the reason I don't put those in the show notes is the spammers can actually scrape them out of there if it's in clear text like that. So I'd rather you, Thank not, you. not get a bunch of junk from because we put this all in the show notes. But I, I, it'll be on the video. You can go to YouTube, watch it on there. It's, it's actually posted on the screen. Or you can uh, rewind, listen to that a couple of times. Again, it's Jonathan, uh, spelled J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N, at transactcapital.com, T-R-A-N-S-A-C-T, capital.com. So I appreciate you. Uh, is there any parting notes? We're, we're right getting close to the hour here. Uh, is there anything you want to, to say to the rest of the, the world here? Uh, no, thank you. It's going to sound like, sound like a shameless plug, but whether it's me or someone else, when you come time to exit your business, use an advisor. Um, you know, Just like you would for a real estate uh, transaction, don't sell on your own. Find an expert that can help you do it. You want to do it once, you want to do it right. And so um, find an advisor that you trust that can help take you through the process. And I'll second that. If I'm looking at something and you don't have all your last three, if you don't have a package together to show me like who you are as a business, your last three, your financials, profit and loss statements, um, kind of your plan where, you're, where you were planning on going, if you don't have all that, it drags the process down. So if you're yeah. working with an investment banker and you guys have got what they call a deal room or an exit package or something for me just to look through real quick. I can put together a team fairly quick to analyze a deal. If the information is there, uh, I walk away from a lot of stuff. It's not, if it's not really super sexy money wise or just intriguing, if you don't have your act together, I won't even look you know any deeper. And I know a lot of my guys that I work with and, and talk to, they're the same. So yeah. uh, that advisor is going to make a world of difference in getting people who are, you know, wanting to put together a team to, to, to actually buy your business. 
So I appreciate you having having you on here. Hang out a couple seconds after I end the uh, the live stream. And uh, all right, well, thanks for having again. me. It was fun. The Investors and Entrepreneurs Professional Mastermind. The Investors and Entrepreneurs Professional Mastermind combines the traditional peer-to-peer mastermind introduced first in Napoleon Hill's famous book, Think and Grow Rich, with accountability partnering where your peers help you ensure that you set goals, take actions, and get results. If you want to scale, blow past roadblocks, and achieve success faster than you might think is possible, I suggest you take a visit over to TIEPM.com. That's T I E. PM.com and check out the Investors and Entrepreneurs Professional Mastermind.